Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Hover.com. When you have a great idea for your blog, your store, or your startup, or whatever, what you need to do is get a great domain name, and finding the perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with Hover. And if you transfer your existing domain name to Hover in the month of June, Hover will give you a 40% discount. Go to Hover.com slash transfermydomain. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun easy and convenient. For 50% off of your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Rosalind Salusen. Hi. Freelance writer and editor for Femsplain. Welcome to CanadaLand Shortcuts. Thanks. Thank you for being here. Today we're going to talk about the totalitarian queer state of Ontario, which is going to separate babies from their parents if the parents don't buy into some crazy new gender identity. No, that's not happening at all. We're going to talk about how everybody got that wrong. We are going to talk about your experience almost freelancing for Teen Vogue and how that didn't quite work out. And we are going to talk about changes to the rape shield laws of Canada which are said to be a result of the Gomeshi case. It's good to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. 
This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Ian Bushfield, Sarah Cowan, Jonathan Chalice, Ryan Quans, Andrea Spector, Christopher Lynchon, Jonathan Verrett, and Robert Vandeway. Robert, why did you decide to be awesome? Even though I don't always agree with Jesse, I enjoy Candleland content and think of it as an important and necessary source of journalism. Candleland tells the stories that mainstream media doesn't put enough effort into or totally ignores. And again, this episode is brought to you by Hubbard.com. Rosalind, you are a writer on the internet? Yes, I am. You have a portfolio site of some kind? Yeah, it's rosiebox.com. Rosalind, I'm not going to ask you who hosts your domain name. That's personal, private information. Nobody should be forced to disclose that on a podcast. But I will tell you that Hover.com is a great place to get a domain name or to host your email or to move your domain. Privacy is one of the reasons because they give you free who is privacy. Some of the other domain registrars will try to upsell you. They'll keep your name when people want to look up your website. Do they get your phone number? Do they get your name and address? Other places will try to charge you for that, but there should be no charge because it doesn't cost them anything more. It comes for free. Who is privacy with Hover? Because Hover believes that privacy is not an add-on, it is a right. How many times have you had a DNS or other domain-related issue that you needed help with, but getting customer service provided to be a horrible, horrible ordeal? That is not the case with Hover. They have best-in-class customer support. No wait, no hold, no transfer phone support every step of the way. If you transfer your existing domain to them now to Hover in the month of June, you will get a 40% discount. If you already have time left on your domain registration, then you keep all that existing time and you get 40% off the year that follows it. It's just a very good discount. Get 40% off of your additional year when you transfer now by going to hover.com slash transfer my domain. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. 
So, Rosalind, we shared with you these stories that were making the rounds in uh, Breitbart and all of these conservative websites. All these American conservative websites are talking about Canadian law. And if you read the story, like I read the story, I thought, wow, that sounds awful. Oh, absolutely. And what they're reporting is that there is a new Ontario law that enables the government to seize children from their parents if their parents oppose gender transition. If the, if the child says, dad, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl, and the parents have conservative values or traditional family values or just don't buy that, then this totalitarian nanny state in Ontario will step in and wrest child from parent to conform with their crazy new liberal ideology. And, and this was widely shared tens of thousands of times across the conservative internet. Oh, God. And it was one of these stories that reads like a news story. This yeah. is Bill 89, the Supporting Children, Youth and Families Act. And they quote the Minister of Children and Youth Services, Michael Cotou, as saying something that seems to be consistent with how they were reporting this, that he considers it abuse should a parent not recognize a child's stated gender desire. And then they kind of draw the line. And then here's this new bill that says, if abuse happens, we can take your child away. And so therefore, this bill is saying that we can take your child away if they're... And we were curious about this before we could fully look into it. Ishmael Darrow at BuzzFeed looked into it and asked the government, like, is this... Act no, it's just not true. Shocking that yeah. Breitbart is spreading fake news. They took out of context a quote that was sort of unrelated to this new bill that Kotu made, speaking about foster parents, that if a foster parent refuses to recognize a foster child's stated gender, that, you know, you could conceive of that as abuse. And then to his great misfortune, he said, it's sort of like telling a child that they're not allowed to believe in Jesus Christ. The conservative internet went wild about that one, that they were somehow equating this and somehow this was like, somehow it got in the broken telephone reported as the ch Christian families were going to be targeted right. and the government was going to step in. And if your kid had any gender confusion, Christian families would be the first in line to have their children taken from them. Right. And it's not what the law intends to do, nor is it anything that the law will do. Exactly. And I don't know, there's sort of this larger trend I'm noticing of Canada being used to kind of create these bias confirming stories. Yeah. Have you noticed this happening? Like, I noticed it happening first on the left where you would get stories from America that, you know, we could be like Canada, be it in terms of same-sex marriage or legalization of weed or universal health care, and Canada is a paradise. Americans who are pushing America to be more progressive say, look, right. we, we could be more like Canada. And the facts are less important than the rhetorical device of Canada. Exactly, yeah. And then a lot of Canadians like, like being thought of that way, so we don't really protest. But then it can be used by the other side as well. Exactly. I mean, I feel that, as you said, they see Canada as kind of like a paradise land and everyone's so nice here, everyone's polite. That's kind of the stereotype of Canadians. Um, and that's not entirely true, especially in Toronto. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're we're kind of rude. Like, we're not exactly the most polite people. I have observed this. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. I mean, I, I love living here. But yeah, it's absolutely true that we see on both sides, just taking these little things out of context and then using it to either say that, oh, Canada's this great place or Canada's this awful place where they're going to take your children away. Yeah. It, it's kind of choose your own adventure and, and yeah. who's going to check because it's just Canada. And like it, it happened just again today, the New York Times kind of late to the party ran an opinion piece on this, uh, the cultural appropriation, the appropriation prize right? in defense of cultural appropriation. I roll and, and here is <laughs> this opinion piece that begins with this example of like things are pretty crazy up in Canada. The politically correct mob is certainly on the warpath. Three editors lost their jobs because they had wrong think on cultural appropriation. 
and um, it goes on to say, you know, Hal Nidvetsky was was uh, forced out of his job by a social media mob. It's just not true. Yeah. Hal quit and said why he quit and apologized for that editorial he wrote. Jonathan Kay was forced out of his job at the Walrus. That's not true either. Jonathan Kay confirms this. He had fought with his boss for months, had tons of issues at the Walrus, was going to quit anyhow. And they're following The Economist. Like yeah. The New York Times and The Economist will take a Canadian controversy and use it as just a way to build an argument. I guess I'm just getting more and more aware of just how big a role confirmation bias plays. We choose stories, we write stories, we base stories on that, which either like sometimes it's unconscious, like, you know, we want to believe a certain thing. So you'll take like, I need three examples to form a thesis. So here's the right. thing that happened in Canada. Yeah. And then you got the Breitbart thing where it's just, a, I think, a willful disregard for facts and truth and exactly it's simply like this is what our audience wants stories about it fuels their outrage and yeah and the idea that canada is you know not this positive example of a utopia but a negative like we don't want to go down this road they have this lesbian premier and they're coming into christians homes and they can kind of just say whatever the fuck they want yeah. about us and they're not pretty too quick to uh to correct i've been talking about this in different ways on the show for a while right. like i i wonder like at what point do we say Enough of this, like in, in the same way that I'm, I'm, you know, during the appropriation prize debate, you saw so many indigenous voices saying like, fuck yeah. off. Like we're tired of being used as rhetorical cannon yeah. fodder. We're human beings with opinions and you got your facts wrong. Does Canada kind of do the same thing and just say, stop? Like it doesn't even matter which side you're, you're using, you're, you're, you're shoehorning us into. You're getting it wrong. It didn't happen that way. Yeah. There needs to be, you know, some voices coming out like Canadian voices saying that, you know, we're not perfect. And we're also not this negative utopia where, you know, we're going to come into your homes and take your transgender children because you don't respect them. That's absolutely not true. And it's funny that Breitbart is spewing all of these news items that are fueling the outrage when they criticize the left for doing the exact same thing. Yeah. The tactics of the left that they think Their that the perceived left, left yeah. tactics. They'll say that as justification. Like, well, you're biased anyhow, so that gives us a cover for like, yeah, we're biased, but we admit it. Exactly. Like last week, it was just that 5,000 Trump supporters march on Ottawa. They were like 200 at most. Like, it's just, <laughs> we're just in a fantasy land. I've already alienated every Canadian media. Now I've got to come at The Economist and The New York Times. There'll be no bridges left. But this is something that you have not shied away from doing. Absolutely not. <laughs> so let's talk about that. It kind of went viral when you told the story of what happened when you pitched a piece to Teen Vogue. Yeah. Why don't you run through that for sure. us? Sure. So I pitched a piece in April, at the end of April rather, because there was a story about stealthing, which is when a partner removes the condom without the other person's knowledge or consent. And that piece really hit home for me. That's something that happened to me. That's where my advocacy comes from. My advocacy as someone against sexual violence and as a feminist, that's a huge piece to me. So Teen Vogue has this column called Not Your Fault, written by people who are survivors of sexual assault or who know survivors of sexual assault. And I thought that this piece that I pitched, which was called Is Stealthing Rape? And it it is rape. I know this. In law, it is. It really is. Like, it's it's sexual assault. And it's certainly rape, especially because it's um, the context in which the consent was given changes. Yeah. And you have the right to withdraw that consent, even if you gave it in the first place. You could, yeah, you gave consent for something different and, yeah. and, and much less potentially damaging to your health. Than exactly. Sure. So that's why I pitched it to Teen Vogue to write for the website. I mean, a lot of people know this by now, but a few years ago, you might have thought, wow, that sounds pretty graphic for Teen Vogue, but Teen yeah. Vogue has sort of rebranded itself. Yeah, which is why this whole story that I've kind of 
exposed is so heartbreaking because they're so woke. Yeah. And they're progressive. And that's that's a recent development. They hired Elaine Wetteroth, I think. Um, and she's the first black woman who's the editor in chief of Teen Vogue. And Lauren Duca ran that piece saying that Trump was gaslighting America. And that was a huge piece. And that's why Teen Vogue has become this kind of beacon of progressiveness in digital media. In a very cool way. Yeah. There's people who kind of like sneer at like the idea of fashion press to begin with and women's magazines yeah. to begin with. And then you add the teen to it. And there's this almost like reverse trolling thing where like they're just going right for political issues and the most substantive and like sort of a- aggressive takes on things. Yeah. And inviting people to kind of sneer and say, who cares what Teen Vogue has to say yeah. about this? Which brings up the question of like, actually teenage girls should have a lot to say about Absolutely. this stuff. And they've been having this wonderful moment and they've published some wonderful things. Yeah. So going back to my piece, um, I pitched it in April. I heard back immediately, maybe within 12 hours, saying that, yes, this is an important story to write and we would love to have you draft it. They greenlit your pitch. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to give myself space because that is a very triggering topic. And I wanted to do it justice. And the editor was okay with that. But then the next day, she got back to me and said, hey, can you write this draft earlier, like maybe today or tomorrow? My editorial director would like to run it. So I wrote it. The next day, I submitted it. And I didn't hear anything from her. So I was like, okay, I guess she's busy. That's fine. So I emailed her back the following Monday, the original deadline, and I heard nothing from her. Yeah. I heard nothing from her for two weeks, which is a pretty long time considering I submitted a draft and I, you know hauled ass to get it to her. Well, they they wanted it. They wanted it now. Yeah. And it was urgent, urgent, urgent. And then suddenly they, they disappeared. Yeah. yeah. And then the editor got back to me saying, okay, well, you've um, identified your attacker, which wasn't true. I just stated that he was a coworker. And that's... Right. For legal reasons, they didn't want you to identify the yeah. attacker. Yeah. Which I would assume that's his name, his place of work, whatever, yeah. which I would never do anyway. So for her to say that it was that I identified him. And then she also went on to say, okay, well, can you kind of rework it so that it's just an opinion piece on the stealthing thing? And I'm like, no, I don't want to rework the draft entirely for you to to run it. And she said, okay, well, if there's any documentation that you can give us. Of the assault. Yeah, yeah. then that would be great, which I already had. And by that time, my vice piece had already run the piece on the criminal injuries board. Yeah. So I sent her the documentation that I sent for that. And I sent the article to the vice piece. And she said, okay, I'm going to run this by legal. This looks good. I'll let you know by the end of day on Friday. Nothing. I followed up a week later. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I followed up two weeks later. Nothing. So then I finally decided to just pull the piece because Mm -hmm. it could go somewhere else. I was really proud of that piece and the fact that it took so long for her to even reply to my email saying she'd get back to me. I was just like, I'm over it. Mm -hmm. I'll find somewhere else. But it's funny because as soon as I pulled the piece, she emailed me back this like three, four paragraph email saying how she's so busy and there's only one editor on the vertical and she had to go by legal and blah, 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 which is fine. I understand it. I understand that editors have really tough jobs. Um, I understand that, you know, there are other pieces in the queue, but at least be fucking professional and email me back and just say, this is what's happening. And don't just email me back because I'm pulling the piece. So you ultimately did something that a lot of freelancers, I think, would be afraid to do. Oh, yeah. You called out Teen Vogue and your editor on Twitter. Yep. And what happened next was... 
I think, a big part of this as well. Oh, yeah. So I was kind of encouraged by one of my friends in New York who is a freelance writer. And she said, you know, this is common with Teen Vogue. And it just didn't sit right with me that Teen Vogue, who's capitalizing on being progressive, they're getting so much more of an audience because they're so progressive, that they would be wasting freelancers' time. And a lot of freelancers are, you know, they're racialized, they're women. And for Teen Vogue to be so woke and then wasting these people's mm-hmm. time, it's it doesn't make sense. So I just ended up posting screenshots on Twitter. Um, I created a thread um, and it just blew up from there. A lot of people sent me messages saying, yeah, I experienced the exact same thing. And there was one editor in common. She's been wasting a lot of people's time. And the fact that it's mostly her, there are a couple of other editors who were mentioned as well, but she was the main culprit. And it it just doesn't sit well with me that she's the wellness editor, but she's, you know, causing so much stress for so many people. Has she responded? No. <laughs> Can I be totally honest with you? Yeah. My first response, and it was my, it evolved somewhat. Yeah. But my first response when I read this was, I mean, that sucks. And I've seen it from the freelancer side, but that's the way it, that's freelancing. Yeah. That editors leave you in the dark. Editors take too long to get back to you until they need you. Then they, then they want it immediately. And when I read that she brought up the idea of like, okay, I have to take this to legal. I thought, well, oh, of course. Yeah. When you have to take it to legal, the gears grind to a halt. Absolutely. And things take forever. And then it's not just her call. And Absolutely. then there's like four different people involved. And then I know, because now I feel this from the other side, yeah. commissioning stories and editing for Canada Land and right. working with freelancers that usually when a freelancer is waiting for reply from me, it's because I don't know what to tell them. Right. I don't know the answer. I don't know. They want to, like, are you are you printing it? Are you not? What do you want to do with it? And then you're on some other crazy deadline. So you right. just like, I don't know what to say to them because I don't actually have a, so I, I, you know, I try to say, be patient just so there's something. Yeah. But sometimes I'm sure I've lapsed in that. You yeah. Know? And there are people who have been just as frustrated with me as you were with this editor. So that was my first response. Yeah. And then I kind of read all of the other people not that yours wasn't good enough. I was just yeah, kind of like, you know, well, how much can you infer from one person? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then all these other people came out and, and said, I had a similar experience. And it wasn't just that they had, you know, been ghosted or kind of strung along or dicked yeah. around. It was that they were writing this intensely personal stuff, yeah. which is what Teen Vogue does. Yeah. They ask young women to share very personal stuff, yeah. sometimes involving sexual assault. And they want that and they pay just, it's not unique to them. Everybody pays poorly, but they don't pay you a lot. They want you to share this stuff. And then I thought, okay, all of the, there is a pattern here. It seems yeah. to all be within context of this one editor. And there's probably a different standard that you, you're going to have to hold yourself to if you want people to be forthcoming. Exactly. And present yourself publicly as this woke kind of a- Exactly. Are you afraid that this is like it for you and your name is mud with uh, Condé Nast and et cetera, et cetera? We've been calling them Condé Nasty. Oh, they call themselves that. Oh, really? Yeah, Condé Nasties. So (laughs) That's not good. No, I'm not really worried. I I don't freelance for a living, thank God. I have a stable salary, so I'm in a very privileged position to be able to call these people out. Yeah. And the fact that so many people, especially people of color, have come forward saying, like, I've shared this, like, really personal story and they wasted my time. Um, it just didn't sit right with me. Um, yeah. Especially, especially, like, for me, when it comes to sexual assault survivors, I, I had a few survivors come forward and say, yeah, they wanted me to share my story and they ended up not going with it or they ended up ghosting me. And 
in general just wasting my time. So um, yeah, I'm not worried that it's you know my last. Like I'm, I'm not worried about my reputation or anything. Yeah, you know, I'll say this before we kind of move on. Yeah, I think that editors are. You know, I'm not trying to mitigate or make excuses for this editor. Editors know where the lines are with their responsibility Absolutely. to publish, yeah. right? They're under pressure to publish. They have to do their jobs and get the publication out. There is no vigorous conversations, standards, policies that we all know and adhere to yeah. about how to treat freelancers and right. what we owe freelancers. Yeah. And I think that we can kind of single out one editor, but the truth is it varies from shop to shop. Everybody likes to be well thought of by freelancers. Everybody hates being called out by, by freelancers. Um, but we also are kind of without a map. Right. And when I think about this, I think, you know, maybe there's like some greater conversation. And as freelancers, I think, are getting a bit more courage and they have more platforms to, yeah. to say this kind of stuff, we're being forced into it. But what is, and as we're paying less than ever before and demanding yeah, yeah. more, like, what are the rules? Like, let's actually, like, talk about the rules and, like, what, you know. Absolutely. You know, like, like here's what you're getting into. You know, because there's all kinds of like, people like, oh, the story showed up and somebody else wrote it or they took my thing, but they but they changed it. And, you know, there's just you lose control completely yeah. of your own, sometimes your own most private stories. There doesn't seem to be any like ethical or moral standard that yeah. editors follow when it comes to freelancers. And that's especially for Teen Vogue. Like that's a little disappointing. And considering Condé Nast is such a huge publication, they shouldn't just be paying 50 to 75 dollars. Vice paid me. Is that what they pay? Yeah, that's. Garbage. Oh, well, I'll boast. We pay $200 minimum for a yeah. freelance piece. So we're beating Teen Vogue. Yeah. yeah. And I got around the same amount for Vice Canada. So. Okay. And they probably have half the budget that Teen Vogue does. Rosalind, this is the time on Canada Land Shortcuts where we note stories and things that have crossed our attention that we think people should know about. It's called Duly Noted. I would like to duly note something. We reported in the Canadian media extensively that Justin Trudeau is disputing this report in the German publication Der Spiegel. Like that itself was a headline, that he is demanding retraction or that they clarify or that they correct this erroneous report. And it was even kind of put in the same category as a previous incident where Fox News tweeted that the Quebec mosque shooter was of Moroccan origin, a false, awful lie, trying to pin that on a Muslim when it was a white supremacist killing. And here's our prime minister standing up again to the international media when they get things wrong. What do they get it wrong about? Uh, Der Spiegel reported that Justin Trudeau had called up Angela Merkel and basically argued for appeasement when it comes to the Paris Agreement and Donald Trump, saying, let's remove mention of the Paris Agreement from this joint statement that a bunch of countries are putting out. Because if we mention the Paris Agreement, which Trump just exited, we'll be embarrassing him. And we don't want to ruffle their feathers. So essentially, this was all under the guise of that Merkel is putting together this coalition of countries that are standing in opposition to the United States when it comes to the environment. And Trudeau was the weakling who... Um, who caved and didn't want to upset Donald Trump. Not so, said Trudeau, and he said it to Thomas Mulcair in Parliament. So I just want to duly note that after all of our headlines about Trudeau demanding clarification, Der Spiegel did run an update where they quoted the prime minister's statement that, that he feels that uh, he was mischaracterized and misquoted. And then they continued to say that they stand by their story, that they got it right. Der Spiegel said... Sources within the government in Berlin told Der Spiegel that the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau suggested to Angela Merkel to keep references to the Paris Treaty out of the G20 Declaration in Hamburg. 
which would allow U.S. President Donald Trump to sign the planned declaration on energy. I'm not a lawyer to parse with exact detail exactly what Trudeau feels his position is from what Der Spiegel. It just seems like there is a direct contradiction as far as I can tell. There's not room for both of these things to be true. Either Trudeau is misrepresenting what he said to Angela Merkel or Der Spiegel or their sources got it wrong. And it is a reputable mainstream publication that would not lightly rebuke the Prime Minister of Canada. Right. I don't know who's telling the truth here, but it should not just be for German readers to know that Der Spiegel is standing by their story and they are saying that Trudeau, in fact, did cave and try to appease Donald Trump. Duly noted. Rosalind, what do you have for us? There is a great podcast out there run by one of my good friends called Yes, You're Queer. It is a podcast that kind of outlines the history of the LGBT community and every episode they they discuss really iconic figures in the queer movement. And considering that it's the one year mark of the Pulse Attacks, Yes, You're Queer was born of the Pulse Attacks. Can you see that slower? Like, what's it called? It's called Yes, You're Queer. Like yesterday, but yesterday. Yeah. And who's it by? Kalen Havel and some of his friends. Cool. We'll check it out. Duly noted. Finally, I just want to duly note that the CBC's union has released a statement, the Canadian Media Guild, and I'll just quote from it. CMG members have made a very public and vocal pushback these past 10 months. It began with an interview given to Canada Land in August 2016 for an article titled Just How White Is the CBC? This exposed years of virtual inaction. Members from across the country of the union then organized and sent two letters to the president of CBC, Hubert Lacroix, and to Jennifer McGuire, who runs the news there, demanding change and accountability from management in their hiring decisions. Things that management had just been talking about were suddenly pushed into action, including company-wide unconscious bias training for managers and a leadership training program for visible minorities. We congratulate our members for effectively bringing change as a grassroots group. This is awesome. Like Farnia Fekri wrote a story for us basically showing that, I mean, we can talk about diversity in the media, in private media, it's important as well. This isn't just like, oh, it's nice to have lots of different kinds of people. It's like, if the media is not as diverse as Canada, then what do you expect the stories to be like? And if there are not people in newsrooms who are indigenous, who are like, like, what do you expect? I mean, the media we get is a reflection of this. When it's the CBC, which we found is drastically less diverse than Canada itself, it's not acceptable. And absolutely, it's really cool that Farnia's work and Canada Land's work seems to have been a motivating factor. What I'm curious about going forward is when we come back on this, because we actually were not able to conclusively uh, report on what the diversity numbers are, because that's not public information at the CBC. We had to kind of piece it together in a roundabout way. I would hope that one of the reforms is that they're actually going to be accountable and tell us where they're at with diversity and not just as an overall, but at different places on camera, behind the scenes, the whole deal. And I think that just really highlights the importance of calling shit out when you see it. Duly noted. Rosalind, this is the time when we thank our second sponsor, HelloFresh. Do you cook? No, my mom cooks. <laughs> I cook, but not like as much as I'd like to. Of course. And I've realized when I didn't have a nine to five, I cooked all the time. And and when I had kids, I thought I'm going to cook for my kids all the time. And I just don't do it as much as yeah. I want to because the cooking isn't the problem. It's the meal planning. It's what am I going to cook tonight? It's going to the supermarket after work when it's so busy. HelloFresh has solved this problem. HelloFresh does the meal planning. They will send you these meal kits that give you exactly the amount of ingredient that you're going to use. So there's no waste. They give you recipes that are like never going to take you more than 30 minutes. And depending on whether you get their family plan or the plan for, you know, grownups alone, you're going to actually have food that your kids want to eat or that you want to eat. Um, It's actually like a remarkably 
like they've just solved a bunch of problems. Yeah. Um, and they source their ingredients locally and it's, it's, it's fresh, it's delicious stuff. Um, it's made a big difference in how my household works. And I think people should give this a shot. We're seeing a lot of people start to try out things like HelloFresh and HelloFresh is your best option for it. So check it out now. You can just try it out for 50% off of your first box. Visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. You can cancel this at any time. You get half off your first box. Try it out. And I think you'll see what I mean. It's kind of a game changer and it makes it really fun. And, uh, you know, the stress is gone. I just cook my kids, keep me company. 30 minutes, we're eating a home-cooked meal. Sounds good. Okay, finally, this story got slept on for the amount of, like, coverage that the Gameshi case got, just copious. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in Canada where it's just round the clock, every little detail gets covered in this case, especially because it was just this wrenching thing of seeing Gameshi's accusers' uh, testimony ripped apart on whatever basis the defense could find around their texts, their emails, letters, whatnot. And yet this follow-up story, which is incredibly consequential, was sort of reported in the Globe and then I haven't heard anybody talk about it. So let's just take a moment to talk about the fact that the criminal code is being extended by a new liberal law to extend the rape shield laws. So here's what the Globe had. In a criminal code amendment that a sexual assault crisis center called a direct response to the acquittal of broadcaster Gian Gameshi, proposed legislation would spell out for the first time that a complainant's text messages, emails, and video recordings with sexual content or a sexual purpose can be kept out of trials. That makes a lot of sense to me. If we've already established that a accuser's past sexual history and rumors of promiscuity are to be shielded from the courts during a rape trial and should have no bearing on a verdict, then shouldn't their texts about their sexual history or it's the exact same thing just yeah. applied to digital materials. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, And a second change would prevent personal records of the complainant that are in the accused's possession, such as journals or diaries or medical records or perhaps personal letters, as in the Gameshi sex assault trial, from being used as evidence unless a judge agrees in a private hearing. Right. I read this and I felt like, finally, it just makes sense if we've determined that sexual history should have no bearing, then let's let's make that make sense in a modern context. But also, what we all saw happen is that anything that you allow into evidence, regardless of whether or not it actually speaks to the assault itself, becomes an opportunity for the defense to hyper-examine it for inconsistencies. Yeah. Because when you're talking about rape and sexual assault, in the absence, as there often is, of physical evidence, it just becomes about the credibility of the accuser. Absolutely. So it doesn't even matter if it has anything to do with the assault. It's just like, uh, you said orange, it's yellow. You know, or you said yellow uh, and then you said orange. The the little things that if you were to, I think, scrutinize anybody's memories about anything, you'll find these things. And then you use that to cast aspersions on their credibility overall. Exactly. I think that this is a change that would have had a very big impact on the Gameshi trial. I agree. You know, where we didn't even talk about the assault. The validity of whether or not that happened or not was not even broached by that. Right. It it was just about these these accounts, these text messages, these letters. Right. I mean... The only way that an alleged attacker can kind of defend themselves against an accuser is to destroy their credibility before the judge. And, of course, they're entitled to their defense. 
Of course, they're entitled to defending themselves from horrible allegations. But the credibility of the survivor doesn't mean that the attack didn't happen. The credibility, of course, should be on trial with respect to the allegation. Absolutely. You know, with respect to the allegation, are you lying about what you said happened to you? And is there evidence to the contrary? And let's examine the validity of the thing you said happened. Exactly. Could it have happened? And that's fine. But, you know, when it spins out to all of these perceived normative behaviors of how you're supposed to act before and after, and yeah. it just goes into this territory where I don't think it serves anyone, you know. Absolutely like, not. Look, I simultaneously recognize just how difficult it is. The criminal justice system is ill-equipped for this stuff. Absolutely. And I don't, I, I don't know, you know, when, when you're ultimately talking about crimes, if it boils down to a question of consent and only two people were present when consent was given or not given, it's going to be a hard thing for, Absolutely. A, for a courtroom. I heard some blowback on Twitter that this was not a good thing, these changes, and I haven't heard that argument argued in any kind of uh, persuasive way. I don't even know what the argument against this this new legislation is. It just seems like a good thing to me. Yeah. But I'd like to know what the other side of this is. I mean, the rape shield law has been in practice for, what, 25 years almost? And we're still seeing survivors pass be put into play at the trial. Yeah, well, yeah. Marie Hanane actually yeah. famously gave a blueprint to law students. It's, there's a YouTube video where you can watch her give them tools to subvert the rape shield law how to get an accuser's sexual history in front of the judge, regardless of the rape shield laws. So like the idea that we've erased this from rape trials is erroneous. There are ways that skilled criminal defense attorneys have found to get this before a judge, and it has prejudicial impact, I think. And that's why this extension of the rape shield law is great. It's a good gesture for sure, but I don't know that it's going to solve anything or make anything better. Like even before today, I wasn't even really aware of the law being extended. Yeah. Well, there's two things at a minimum, and you know, just my experience in covering this story, I know that a powerful disincentive for many women in coming forward against Jean Gameshi was that he was in possession of their text messages, sexually explicit content, much of which he solicited from them, yep. much of which, in my opinion, was engineered to give the appearance of exculpatory consent. Absolutely. Um, and this was made known to them that he had these things and might use them and it might be public. So just knowing that this is now covered to some degree from a rape shield law, I think changes the dynamic yeah. or whatever in that case. And I also just feel like, look, in my opinion, Lucy de Couture was telling the truth about the assault. Absolutely. And I know that the experience was awful for her. Whatever solace, I think this law is a result of what happened. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I felt like she should know that this wasn't all for nothing. Yeah, I I agree. At least something good came out of this. Rosalind, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is your Candleland Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at candidalandshow.com. I read everything you send me and I respond when I can. And we are on Twitter at Candidaland. Rosalind, where can people find you? I am at Rosiebox on Twitter. R-O-Z-Z-Y-B-O-X. Our website is candidalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash Candidaland. This episode is produced by Ali Graham. If you like what we do, please support us. Thank you.